So money is something that I've had a learning curve here in life with. Me too. And still do. Yeah. And one of the things that's profound in, in the book that you're coming out with, you compiled a lot of really powerful quotes. Thank you. One of the quotes is about God and money. Uh, money is always backed by the forces of good and evil. And who wins depends on how you use it. Now, when yes. I first read that quote in an email you sent to me, I thought, okay, well, if money is man-made and it's a figment of our imagination and it's an energy exchange that we all agree exists, yes. Uh, why don't we hold within our imagination the way to find a more egalitarian way to use money to serve the collective good? We've seen in COVID, uh, the top five billionaires in the world, they get like $100, $100 billion. They've amassed more in wealth while 75 million Americans have uh, essentially declared bankruptcy. Yeah. So what do we make of this, this, this energy exchange of money here on the planet? And how do we move towards a more egalitarian, unified way to experience money and, and that energy exchange? Well, the, the, the answer to that's not really addressing the quote. I understand the question. The quote is saying that money is a form of power, and whether or not it's good or evil depends on how you use it. How you use it depends on the ethical and moral principles that guide your choices. So, as you just said, just a few people have gotten filthy, stinky rich over the whole COVID thing, which if you do the research, you realize it was planned. Yes. So, it would do that. If you look at all the stock market crashes, they're all planned. Why? Because the people that stand to make the most money can manipulate the system so that basically what they do is they force us into a depression push the interest rates up so high collapse the economy and everybody has to get out of their houses and go rent places and sell them for pennies on the dollar and the rich people come buy them all up for a fraction of their actual value then they raise the economy back up and sell the stuff so basically what they're doing is the same thing as um, people do to manipulate the stock market manipulate real estate markets they they just know how to manipulate them all because they have enough power to do that you know you you the quote that I, that I wrote there is really saying that how you use the money will mirror back to you whether or not it's good or evil and as we discussed earlier Evil is self-oriented, self-inclusive. It's the power of accumulation. So evil without morality is yin without morality. Yin multiplies by bringing things into a center. A, a, a fetus begins with one cell, one egg and one sperm, and it divides itself, I think, 54 times to produce you know, a human body of anywhere between 50 and 100 trillion cells, depending on whose book you read. So what I'm showing you is that the force of yin draws energy and resources in and multiplies itself until it reaches the point at which, like a sponge, a good analogy is a sponge. If you put a sponge in a bowl of water, it will suck up water until it reaches a saturation point, and then it will drop the water. It'll begin pushing it out. So when the child reaches full term... It has to come out of the birth canal or it and the mother will die, okay? So when we look at the principle of yin and we say, okay, how does yin orient itself toward evil? When someone like a Bill Gates or a Warren Buffett or any of these big, huge billionaires draws more and more, or, or Donald Trump draws more and more money in 
but does not release it out into the world in ways that actually increases the stability of everybody in the environment, then you have the same thing as fetal death because the child keeps growing and growing, but it's not supporting the community called mom and child. If the way we use money actually uh, results in the accumulation of resources to our gain, but it causes a deficit to the people or the environment, then it actually reaches a point where it cannot be sustained anymore. And when you look at the history of civilizations, what happened is they got more and more complex and the rich got richer and richer and the division between the rich and poor got greater and greater until the society collapsed and people starved to death and, and um, the, the whole thing wiped out. Well, the Romans are a great example sure. of that, the Egyptians. So you, you see that there's this force of accumulation that, that tends to go to an excessive point which then leads to a die-out to level the field and so then you have to go into a regeneration cycle. Um, the problem is, is that each of us in our own lives in many ways is doing the same thing. So it's easy to point the finger at some of these big guys. But if you were to go to, uh, you know, the I think uh, the top one... Um, 1% of earners in the world are at the $100,000 a year mark. So if you have a household income of 100000 or more, you're in the top 1% of earners worldwide. My point is if you applied the same analysis that we're applying to billionaires, to people with $100,000 or more, you would probably see that they're actually living in very much the same way because they're emulating the kings, which just to show you how influential that is, people always want to have what they think that the people that have more money and more power and more riches and more fame do. A very good example of that is white bread. Do you know how white bread came to be? I have no idea. Okay, so white bread was only eaten by kings, queens, and royalty because back in the you know 14th, 15th, 16th, centuries they did not have milling machines so what they had to do was sift it through cloth and through silk so they had to grind it and sift it and grind it and sift it so the it was many 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 man hours to make bread turn white and only the wealthiest people could afford to have slaves do the amount of work it took to take grain ground on a stone grinder and sift it and grind it enough to actually make it turn white so why I'm telling you this is because what people don't realize embedded in our cultural mindset is the idea that when you're eating white bread, you're doing what the kings and the queens do. But what they didn't realize is that to make that bread white, you have to get rid of all the nutrition out of it. You get rid of the germ and you get rid of the bran and you're left with the starch. So you have something that is an archetype of royalty, a symbol of royalty but is actually depleting you while you're eating it and also turns out to be destructive to nature because now we monocrop to grow billions and billions and billions of, of tons of grain, most of which just sits in warehouse not being eaten while people are starving on the planet so we can keep eating white bread. Yeah. Okay, so what am I showing you? I'm showing you that people are actually always trying to emulate everybody at every socioeconomical class 
most of the time, the people at that class are trying to emulate the people in the class above them to get to where they're at. And that just goes all the way to the top. So what I'm saying, if it's not clear, is if you look at how a person making 30000 a year handles their money, or 15000 or 60000 or 360000 or $3.5 million, ultimately, how much of that money is being put out into the community to do the kinds of things we want Bill Gates and all those other guys to do is almost no different than them, unfortunately. It's the ultimate mirror. What we're seeing is human behavior and their level of spiritual development mirrored in the power of money. So that's why the quote says, money is always backed by the forces of good and evil, and which one it is, is determined by how you use it. So, until we actually look at ourselves honestly, for example, I donate money to several different um, agencies for environmental protection. Um, You know, I employ people to help me take care of the property here. I, I... I get a lot of joy out of paying the gardener, the house cleaners, the nanny. Um, I make as many donations as I can, but I have to uh, always decide, well, how much can I give out before I actually put myself at jeopardy? And then I have to start laying off people. You see, yes. there's a fine line. Sure. And really, the more money you make, you, you, you end up with the same game. Or the more you make, the more you spend. People's perceptions usually are only as deep as as their power to use money. And so, you know, um, some people can only afford one car, but some people can't function in their business or in their family without two or three because of the way their family structure is set up or maybe two people go in opposite directions to work and have to drive 30 or 40 miles. But at the end of the day, the world is mirroring back to us our individual and our collective choices. And to the degree that we feel any one of these people that are the multi-billionaires of the world, be it the Steve Jobses, the Bill Gateses, the uh, Trumps, the Buffets, the, uh, you know, whoever, you know, there's lots of them up there, the media moguls, etc., to the degree that we don't agree with the way they're using our money, right? Steve Jobs made billions of dollars off of our money. We buy those iPhones, etc. Like, so then it's up to us to say, okay, we're not going to buy that product. Now that we know Google is a very dangerous corporation, if you keep using Google then you have no right to complain because you're actually pumping money into their product, into their control dramas while you do it. If you, if you keep buying um, uh, drugs to manage the symptoms because you're too lazy to take care of yourself, you have no right to complain about the side effects of the drugs and how bad the medical system is because you're making a choice not to participate in your own life and to turn your problems over to a doctor and your pain over to a drug company instead of taking responsibility for it. So what I'm saying, if it's not clear, is that we're as responsible for their riches as they are because we're the ones that keep giving it to them. Once you know your phone is a spy device and they're filming you and listening to you all the time, 
Well, to the degree that you keep your phone around where it can spy on you, then you are submitting yourself to it willingly. Yes, knowing without doing is the same as not knowing. It's the exact same thing. Well, choosing not to choose is making a choice. Yes. And, you know, I said that in class one time, and one of my students said, well, I don't believe that. How can you actually say that? How can you say that choosing, not making a choice is making a choice? I said, though, that's very simple. When your mortgage bill comes in, don't pay it. Choose not to do anything. When your car bill comes in, choose not to do it and see yeah. how long it takes before someone tows your car away and forecloses on your house. And what are you going to do in court? Say, I didn't do anything. And they'll say, exactly. <laughs> I feel like most people are struggling with finances and life. And we talked about this earlier in the podcast, yeah. like they're just dealing with life responsibilities. So the excuse that in the past, before I'd gone through my tribulations around money, an excuse that I used to use was, I'm too busy to worry about earning more money because I'm having such a hard time earning what I have. And when I really stepped back and looked at the bigger picture and I asked a better question, mm -hmm. which was, how do I serve to the deepest possible way I can from my heart and how do I reach as many people as I can? My income doubled. Now, yes. Gran granted, I was in a new relationship and that was on my mind, but, mm -hmm. but can you share with the people, you know, how can they uh, genuinely increase their money by their service? Because that's part of this egalitarian question. Well, the first thing you have to do is realize that the world is always mirroring you back to you. Your look, this gets a bit deep. One of the definitions... Shocker with Paul. <laughs> yeah, one of the definitions of God that's very good, God is a sphere whose circumference is nowhere and a center whose location is everywhere. Meditate on that. God is a sphere whose circumference is nowhere. It goes infinitely forever, and a center whose location is everywhere. Earlier, I told you every time we build bigger telescopes, we find out that the universe is bigger than we thought. We used to think it began with the Big Bang, but modern science has, has completely annihilated that idea, even though people keep hanging on to it, because what do they find? They used to think black holes destroyed everything, and that was the end of it, but now they find that black holes are producing new life constantly, and they know that the black the Big Bang Theory is wrong because technically, when you're using a telescope, you're looking into the past. So you're looking, if, if the universe began with a Big Bang, then the further you look at a star, the younger it should be because you're looking back in time. Well, here's what happens. The bigger the telescopes they build, the more they look into universe or into galaxies further and further back in time, but they find old stars and new stars. So if the Big Bang was actually true, there should be nothing but newer-looking stars, which, uh, if you want to think of it, because you're looking back in time. So if you look back in your life, and you get closer to your birth, right? But when they look in, they see a mix of stars at all levels of development, which means they didn't start with the Big Bang, or they could not be any old stars there. There would only be new stars. So they're seeing that there is a regenerative cycle and that black holes are actually birth centers, and they're constantly spewing out new material, so they're both death forces and life forces at the same time. So current science suggests that there was no beginning or end to the universe, okay? So how are we mirroring ourselves? Well, I tell people love is a boomerang, 
And what that means is whatever you put out into the world comes back to you. Whatever beliefs you have, you're looking through your belief system at everything around you. You're hearing through your belief system. So no matter what I say to you, if your belief system puts a limit on what you're willing to perceive as new possibilities, then nothing a wiser person than you can say to you is going to help make you wiser. So now we go to back to the analogy. If God is a sphere whose circumference is nowhere and center is everywhere and you're sitting here listening to me that makes you a center of consciousness doesn't it mm-hmm. or you wouldn't be having this relationship with me right now there wouldn't be a paul and a josh if you were all inclusive and that's the function of an ego is to create the illusion of separation so if god is a sphere whose circumference is nowhere and center is everywhere and you know you're a center then no matter what you put out into the world, guess where it has to come back to? You, because you're the center of the universe. Because you're a point of consciousness with self-reference. Therefore, no matter how big the universe is, you are the locus of perception and you're the locus of action from which all emerges. Because without you, There is no universe, and there is no Paul, and there is no table, and there is no day, there's no night, there's no life, there's nothing. You are the epicenter of everything. How do you think God wants to see money evolve? That's not a kind of question that really works, because you're pretending that God is an entity that has an opinion. Well, when I say that, I mean the collective understanding of the God within us and the collective God. Well, the, the rule of God is love. So, it, so using money with more love. Anytime you create more love, you're creating more God. That, that doesn't exclude evil, though, because evil ultimately leads to the awareness of love. If someone murders your child, what's that? likely to do to the bonding of the family shatter not necessarily at all if you and your wife had three kids and someone murdered one of them you would all share that pain together it would bring you very close together as a family now if if the husband or the wife murdered the child that would create a real rift in the family right but when my brother committed suicide we all shared that pain. We all shared that burden. It all made us really question how could we have loved him more? Where did we go wrong as individuals and as a family? And it's mm. a very painful trip into love. So the, the, the point I'm making is acts of evil are always opportunities for the rest of us to show more love, right? If someone's... Um, if a city gets wiped out by a hurricane and there's 100,000 people homeless or those types of events, a lot of us start coughing up money to send it over there or some of us get on airplanes and go to help because of the pain and the realization, the emotional effect, the empathy of realizing that could have been us and how would we want to be treated brings us into harmony. You know, when, when, Look, I'll give you a real sad example hate to use a sad example, one of the most common things I have had to deal with in my career is people coming to me that were sexually molested by pastors, preachers, ministers, and priests of the Catholic Church. 
the string of them now is so long, I, I've lost count. But when, when somebody goes through an experience like that, they have tremendous empathy and concern for everybody else that not only has had that happen to them, but ever could. And some of them start organizations, some of them write books, some of them start healing centers, some of them become powerful healers. So what I'm showing you is that everything that we're calling evil gives us a chance to have empathy and compassion and become more aware of a part of ourselves that we're out of touch with. And most people are too spiritually immature to look into themselves to see how much evil lurks right within their own consciousness. Most people vehemently deny that they have the desire to kill or to rape or to maim or to destroy. Um, but anybody that really looks inside of themselves finds that those two forces are very, very alive. I've heard Jordan Peterson talk about this. Knowing the malevolence that lives inside of you allows you to love more. Yes, you cannot manage anything that's unconscious. So if you don't look into your own shadow, then you're being controlled by what you're unwilling to look at. But to the degree that it's in your unconscious, you project your judgments onto others. So gay people in the closet that are in denial will judge other gay people and label them as evil and even show up as at anti-gay rallies. But the day that they get caught having a gay relationship and the truth comes out, they face a force of reckoning that's equal in magnitude to what they put into the world because they are the center of that universe. That because our relationship with money mirrors our relationship with ourselves and our programming and usually is a reflection of how our parents manage money and the religion we were raised in, you see many people believe that Christians believe that Jesus was a poor man and that he gave everything away. And therefore, they should give everything to the church and be more like Jesus. But that's actually a very dangerous perception. And one of the billionaires, Peter Daniels from Australia, one of the richest men in the world, had so many problems with employees that he was hiring that were Christians. He owned a financing organization, an investment organization. And he kept getting these Harvard graduates with Christian upbringing that, that had sort of blocking factors over making lots of money. And it irritated him so much, he took it upon himself to hire five of the world's top theologians to estimate Jesus' net worth. So they did, and it took them five years to do the research, but what they concluded, based on historical record, who the Magi were, and the estimated value of the frankincense, myrrh, and gold that the Magi brought to Jesus, they estimated Jesus' net worth today would be 240 million U.S. dollars. And he said if Jesus wanted to feed 5,000 people, he just waved his checkbook. And if he wanted a new donkey, he just got one right off the showroom floor. Um, <laughs> Jesus was by no means a poor man at all based on his analysis. Mm. So he showed that this is all a program belief that blocks people from their own abundance. Yes. Okay. I feel like this is embedded within the church system where you have to suffer and you have to give well, homage to God. Well, that's how they get rich. 
and you have to lead your life because, you know, Jesus was on the cross and he bared for your sins. He died for your sins. So it's almost this shaming. It's a very low level frequency. Well, it's designed to do exactly what made the Vatican the richest corporation in the world. Uh, J. Paul Getty himself was a very wealthy man. And he said, far better is it to get 1% from 100 men than 100% from one man. Why? Because if you lose the one man, you got nothing. But if you're like a mosquito and you just suck just enough blood out of somebody that they don't miss it, and you can do that millions of times, well, what do you got? The electricity you pay for every day and pay a premium The on. apps on your iPhone. The apps on your iPhone. All the little tiny bites that add up. If you can rip somebody off for a dollar a day for five years and you do it to a billion people, you're an exquisitely rich person. Um uh, and a good example of this from that I remember, you know, my first wife, Sue, was very frugal. She comes from a very frugal English family. Um, so whenever we would go shopping or she would go grocery shopping, she would check every single item against the receipt. And almost every time she went shopping, she found that they were double and triple charging her for things. She, they were charging for things that weren't, that she hadn't even bought. Huh. But most people didn't even look. So the number of, and so her and I said, okay, let's guesstimate that 100,000 people a year shop at Safeway, and every third one of them is getting charged anywhere between one and three extra dollars. Do the math on that. So they, they actually benefit from people's laziness, and you can get very rich by just small additions like that. Right. This is fascinating because one of my beliefs around money that I recognized in my early development was uh, my dad made money. So when he left the home, money was the reason he left the home. And so if I make a bunch of money, then I can't be present for my future wife or for my life. Right. And it was like such a shakedown. It was in an ayahuasca ceremony. I was just feeling into it. And I thought to myself, wow, this is literally just an energy exchange. Yes. And to the degree that I'm healed with my father is the degree I'm healed with money. So that was a big connection yes. that I made. And I think a lot of people have so much wounding. Look at all the money programs out there. Yeah. Look at all the programs that are going to get you rich, but they're not healing the core wound. The yes. core wound is that money means something different to everyone, and money causes a lot of pain for people, so they believe. Yeah. Money is a form of power. Um, and there's an old saying, how you do anything is how you do everything. And... You know, I tell people all the time, someone who can't handle 30,000 is going to ruin themselves with 300. Um, my brother was a drug addict, and many times I made the mistake when he would come to me with all of his very well thought out stories about why he needed money, and he would, you know, give me all these, and he did it to everybody in the family. And, and then I realized every time I give him money, he goes and buys more drugs, and he ends up just high as shit, and then getting himself thrown in jail. So then I said, no, I'm not giving you any money anymore, but what I will give you is food, and then I'll give you supplements. So I started buying him, um, you know, I would go to a store and maybe get a $100 grocery certificate so he could cash it in the store. I would buy supplements. Well, I found that he was just selling all that off too. And so he put me in a situation where I realized I could not help him because he had um, become so crafty, he could take anything and just pawn it off. And even if he took a $35 tub of protein powder and got 10 bucks for it, it was 10 bucks more than he had. And so ultimately, I, 
all of us got to a very painful place where we realized we we actually had to let him go off into the world and dry out and come to the place where he had to come to the realization that he couldn't just keep on bumming money from everyone to stay high and and the sad thing is we thought that 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 might work because we really didn't know what else to do well he ended up joining the hell's angels and then just became a, a motorcycle gangster and um long story that's very interesting but but ultimately you know by the time he was 34 he realized he 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 just didn't have a way out of it so you know it's a bit sad for me to to bring this up but when he died he, he hung himself and he left a, a suicide note and what it said was i have to go because no matter how hard I try, I seem to keep hurting the people I love the most and I don't know what to do anymore. And that really hurt um, because I really didn't know what to do for him either. I didn't know how to help him. Um, None of us did. And so even when he became a criminal, he just ended up in jail and he would call me from jail and he would be in severe pain because he was strung out from from withdrawing from heroin and cocaine. I mean, this guy put everything into his body he could get his hands on. And once he was in a motorcycle gang, you know, they, they were just pirates. They had tons of drugs, but when he would get caught and go to jail, he'd go through severe withdrawal and he would literally be crying his eyes out he'd get his one phone call and and he would call me to see if i could bail him out or something and i i knew i couldn't do it because it would just facilitate the whole thing again so you know there are situations in life that are very very hard to figure out but there's you know you 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 can almost come to the realization that we attract into our lives what we need for growth at our own level of development and what each soul has its own path each soul is an expression of the divine and each soul is an emissary of the divine and is an agent of experience for the divine so in my brother the divine needed to explore the depths of violence it needed to explore the depths of separation from family it needed to explore the depths of alternate realities through the use of drugs. It needed to explore addiction. It needed to explore power and exploitation. But really, at the end of the day, aren't all of us exploring those things at some level? Sure. You know, some mm-hmm. more than others. But we're all, if you look into each of us, each one of us is a very, very unique individual. And even if it looks like we're in the same situations, we're all having a different inner experience. Um, you and I could have sex with the same women, same woman, and have a completely different perception of how enjoyable it was or whether we were compatible or not. You might want to marry her and I might want to be happier than hell that you have her. Or I might want her and you might want her and we might start arguing over who should have her or whatever. But the point I'm making is, we can both be eating chocolate and have very different experiences. Penny doesn't really enjoy chocolate at all, which to me is mind-blowing. I'm like, hmm, wow, <laughs> something's going on in her that ain't happening in me. I mean, if I could get away with it, I could just drink chocolate milk and eat chocolate bars all friggin' day because sure. it just makes me feel great. So unfortunately, my body hates this shit, so I have to be very careful with it. And there's a choice. 
And chocolate can be the good or it can be the evil and money can be the good or the evil and food can be good or evil and televisions and telephones and cars can kill people or get people to work and home or to the Disneyland or back or to play or to parks and back. Everything. People are torturing themselves with food. They're torturing themselves with sex. They're torturing themselves with media. They're torturing themselves with money. They're torturing themselves with drugs. And all of us reach a point at our lives where we realize that we have to either decide to manage that particular force or it's going to manage us. What gets people to the point, like for your brother, that was obviously a contract. That was his path. But what gets people to a point where they choose to either survive or not? I mean, Pain. It's a- it's a big question. Oh, but to what's, survive or but not? But what's unique to one's soul, their, their purpose here on the planet, their contract here on the planet? Well, that, that's uh, something I can only give an opinion on. You know, this gets into some areas of discussion, but one of them is karma. So some people, you know, Yogananda said, you, you, can, you, you accumulate karma... Steiner did too, many have, especially in the Eastern philosophy. You accumulate karma, but they they say, for example, if you murdered somebody in this lifetime, it may be three lifetimes before the universe can organize the circumstances where you're going to have to repay the karma, and you may be on the receiving end of that. But it may not, you, you could end up being wealthy and famous in your next lifetime. Steiner said that if we do something consciously, in other words, harm another person or manipulate, lie, cheat, steal, and we're consciously aware that we're doing it, then we must take the karma for that. If we do it unconsciously, in other words, if we kill somebody accidentally, maybe the road's icy and the car slides off the road and runs into a kid walking home and kills it, it was out of our control, um, then the universe absorbs the karma for that. There is no um, karma we have to absorb for that. Now, if you were speeding and you knew it, and it was icy and you knew it, you'd have to absorb the karma for that because you were, were driving dangerously and putting other people's and your own lives at risk. Mm. So the point that I'm driving at is that this is a deep question that's philosophical. It's not objective, because no matter what I say, it's only my opinion. And all I have to go on is my own experience and my own spiritual exploration. And the depth of God is more than one mind can handle. And paradoxically, the deeper you go into God, the less of you there is to experience it. Ultimately, union with God is complete annihilation of the self. That's why there's nothing you can say about God. Because to become one with God requires unity. There can be no two. So there's no I-thou relationship. You can't say, I was one with God and I saw this or I saw that, because to to actually be able to say that, you had to be separate to observe whatever you're calling God. So union experiences with God, which are non-dual experiences, cannot be described. All that you can describe is the experience on the way in to the unity experiences and on the way out. In order to describe what had occurred, you had to be watching it occur. So there has to be two. So there's a duality at play, and it takes two to create mind. You cannot have 
mind in a unity. I mean, it's the ultimate rabbit hole. And I feel like there are some things that maybe don't have the magical answer I'm looking for. You know, like the loss of a child, the loss of a brother, the loss of anything. It hurts so much. It's like, that's where we bleed out how much we can love again. That's one of the functions of these very traumatic events. Um, You know, sometimes God has to, and this is metaphor, sometimes God has to split our head open to get us down to our heart. And sometimes God has to break our hearts for our love to pour out and for us to really realize who and what we really are. You know, and I've worked with all sorts of people in my career that have had, you know, very serious, nasty things happen to them. Um, And I've also worked with people that have murdered people and done all sorts of wild and crazy, uh, you know, crazy shit like sex with animals and all sorts of stuff that carry a lot of guilt and shame with that. But ultimately, what I see fairly consistently is that when a person heals from those kinds of traumas, they usually become very powerful healers and leaders in the world. They, they really have seen the darkness of themselves and the darkness of God, and they know how easy it is to get caught in it and get swept away. But if God has to take you into the darkness to make a saint or a sage out of you, it seems to me um, at the end of the day, it produces more love. And it's just hard for us to witness and watch. And it's hard to understand because most of us want to have this child belief in a personal God that's like a guardian angel that's always going to keep us Nothing safe. Nothing bad's going to happen to me. Yes, yeah. which is really the territory of the ego trying to control everything. But it's completely um, the opposite of what spiritual development is. You see, the ego has a tremendous resent of any legitimate spiritual path because it all spells death to the ego. This is why, you see, when I give my students Tai Chi assignments or gong assignments, like, okay, you got to do 100 days straight or you're not going to get any legitimate development. You need to develop some spiritual discipline. And if you miss a day, you got to start back over from day one. And I have a system where they have to, I give them a, a gong chart and they have to log on the chart and send it back to me to demonstrate that they've done their gong. And countless is the number of times my students have come back with their tail between their legs. Oh, I'm afraid to show you this. And so what do I see? An X means a day of doing their Tai Chi for at least 20 minutes. And a blank space means I miss. So I see X, X, blank, blank, X, blank, blank, X, blank, X, blank, 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 X, blank, blank. And so I say, no, look at the chart. Honestly, how is that any different than the way you study, than the way you manage yourself, than the way you feed yourself, than the way you are committed in your relationships? Can you look me in the eye and tell me that you have any more consistency in any of those other areas of your life than you do right here? 99% of the time, the answer is no, often with tears in their eyes. I say, there you go. You see, you think I gave you that so you could develop your chi and become some kind of spiritual master but it really gave it to you because it's a paper mirror. It shows you, you. And until you really look at you and take responsibility for your choices and your actions, you're a child and you're always going to be needing mommy or daddy figures to bail you out. How do you do that conversation without them feeling shame? 
or is that just a natural part of the process? I'm just being honest. If they want to be shameful because that's one of their strategies for being a victim and getting more love and empathy, it might have worked with their mom and dad, but I'm not their mommy or their daddy. I'm a teacher. And my job is to be honest, and I have to hold myself to the same standards that I hold them to, or I'm just another idiot and I couldn't have stayed in business for 36 years doing that. You know, the, 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 you're sitting in the results of my discipline and my commitment. This is evidence that I've committed myself to the practices. Yeah. You know, I'm 59, almost 60, and I can still outperform most athletes in athletic endeavors. Uh, and I don't really care to push myself and be a superhero anymore, but anybody that's ever trained with me in a gym or lifted weights, I mean, talk to people like Aubrey Marcus, Kyle Kingsbury, any of those guys, they'll tell you for sure the old man's not dead yet. I saw you guys doing lunges and I was like, was that 225 on the bar? Well, I, I, I lunged 275 for yeah. reps. I, I lost all my training partners at so, 225 was the end of their game. This, this to me is a testament because you said this is the results. We're sitting in the results of your dream, but your dream is deeply connected to God. I mean, because there's nothing else. There's nothing else. There's nothing else to be connected to. I don't even care if you're connected to the devil. Guess what? That's God too. It's just that form of expression of of the divine. And the tr- the trick is, like I said, evil makes love very obvious, doesn't it? Look, Adam and Eve were with God, but they didn't even know they were naked. They didn't know they were naked until they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which could be called the tree of consciousness. When you're unconscious, you don't know what you're doing and you don't know what you have. Until you're conscious of what evil is and how it works, you can't be conscious of what it's ultimately producing in the world. You know, so if I say I don't like how Bill Gates is handling things or Fauci or the government, And to me, some of the things that are going on right now are downright evil. They're not moral, and they're an uh, an injunction on our rights. They're an invasion of our rights. They're an invasion of the whole principles that the United States was built on. It's criminal corporate piracy. It's fascism. It's dangerous. But when I look at it, I say, good, this is exactly what we've got to go through to bring us together as a family because we need something bigger than our little squabbles. We need something bigger than racism. And that don't take that any listeners to mean that I am pro-racism. What I'm saying is people that can organize a scam this big are very good at sideshows. They're very good at creating illusions of battles and sidetracking you and making... uh, racism the the focus well you're not paying attention it's like you know the the moving the shell game right which hand is it under it's old deceptive magic tricks it reminds me of the chimpanzee where they do the cups and the treat would be in the cup yeah and they would keep moving it yeah and keep getting it wrong yeah that's kind of what it feels like for so many people well what i'm saying is we're all facing a situation right now where we've got to realize that a lot of the corporate religious programming has brought us into a state where we are deifying doctors and scientists and religious leaders and people with advanced degrees as some kind of gods, and we keep turning our power and the responsibility for the big decisions over to them 
But then we sit and cry, oh, I've got to wear a mask or I've got to do all this. And oh, I can't say anything. And I won't name names, but I've I've talked to, you know, big time podcasters that I know about why are you not standing up against this vaccination issue? Why are you not concerned about our loss of freedom of speech? And the kind of responses I get is, uh, I don't want to die on that hill or it's too risky for my business. Yes, but look at the long-term ramifications. You might have a business, but you have kids that are being injected and you have no life and that just leads to the next thing into the next thing. And so what's happening is they're building an invisible jail around us and they're turning us all into employees uh, of an even worse kind than we already are. We, you know, when you have a driver's license, you're actually a corporate entity. You're no longer um, a, an individual. When you go to court, you go to court as an employee of the United States government, and you're looked at as a, an employee, not as a person with individual rights. So all I'm saying in the context of this discussion is that we're at a point in the development of man where we've got to actually start taking responsibility for our decisions. We've got to carefully analyze what we were taught with all religious ideas. And the ones that are the most dangerous are any ones that segregate us from other people of other color, creed, religion, race, any of that. And we've got to realize that we all need each other and that we've got to use the technologies that we've developed to stop destroying the planet and start healing it. The same computers that made dangerous bombs and dangerous chemicals can make solutions for that. The same computers that draw lines on maps and create borders and protect them at billions and billions of dollars a year of expenses can be taken down and we can all celebrate life together the same people that hoard resources and wealth and manipulate other people can divide those resources. That's why when I, I'm, I would love to see some of these billionaires really be humanitarians. I'd love to see them invest in education. Giving money doesn't help people. This is why Abraham Lincoln said, the best thing you can do to help the poor is not to become one of them. And people totally misunderstood that. What he's saying is they need education. They don't need money because if you keep feeding them money, they don't know how to make money. So you, all you're doing is prolonging the inevitable. It's like giving a drug addict money yeah. or, or drugs. It's like this little $1,200 stimulus check. That which, was ridiculous. Which for most people is like a feather on the arm. It's like, what is that even going to do? But it is the energetic uh, example of what you're talking about. Just giving people just a little bit oh. so that they think they're being saved. And really what this is for me, Paul, th- this they is- They didn't get given anything. Exactly. That's going to be in their taxes. <laughs> they too. got a loan that they it's, didn't want. Yes. Really the big question here is if God's going to save us, we are, we are God. Yes. So there, we are going. We are going to save us. There is no God. There is to no save God you. to save us. Like God. That's the why queen. I sent you the Krishnamurti video. That's right. God is everything. God is as invested in the evil as it is in the good, the day and the night. Look, God makes universes. We are all concerned about this little planet of ours, but there's more planets in the universe than there are grains of sand on this planet. In other words, God's not some guy that can manage a planet when there's billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of them, right? The people's conceptions of God are so infantile, it's mind-boggling to me after all the thousands of years of religion. 
you know, with the exception, the Eastern religions, this is why Osho said Western religions are religions for children and Eastern religions are religions for adults. Why? Because there's no big daddy in the sky to rescue you. The Eastern religions teach you <laughs> karma. Whatever you put out, it comes back. Do unto others as you would have do unto you. I tell people all the time, get rid of the 990-something pages of the Bible and just write the golden rule down mm -hmm. repeatedly until people wake up to that for, at every level. You know, when we really realize that to the degree that we're conscious and aware of what God is, it is pure potential. God says yes to everything. The highest form of love is unconditional love, and the answer is always yes. You want to rip somebody off? Yes. You want to commit suicide? The answer is yes. You want to be a loving human being and do your best to support people, yourself, and the world? The yes. answer is yes. But because God can't know itself without experiencing all those potentials, there is no limitation on evil. There is no limitation on how much or how little one loves. Because paradoxically, there's never going to be another Josh Trent ever in the universe. God is a novelty generator. There will never, ever be another person with those fingerprints and that face and that smile. You're the only experience of God as Josh. Therefore, the only one that can decide how well Josh did in his role as Josh and the divine drama is Josh. So this whole Christian concept of God judging you is so infantile, it's hard for me to even believe people play the game because if God burns any of us in hell, God's burning itself in hell, which makes for a very, very unintelligent God, I'm sorry to say. But if you understand what God is, then all of these, so many of these religious ideas just dissolve because they don't even make sense. And I, they didn't make sense to me when I was eight. I literally would look at what was being said, yeah. and I could ask questions that got me in a lot of trouble. I felt the same way. And I'm like, are you kidding me? It yeah. made me scared of adults. I'm like, these people drive cars, and they fly airplanes, and they have powerful weapons, and they don't even see God will burn you in hell, onward Christian soldiers marching off to war with the cross of Jesus going on before, but everything Jesus said is completely the opposite of that. The, the Most of these Western religious, do, Abrahamic religious documents are so full of self-contradicting ideas, but, but when you look at the science of brainwashing, the first step to brainwashing someone is to create chaos and confusion. The second step is to give them a, a way out, and the third step is to give them a reward for following the directions. Oh, what do we have right now? Chaos and confusion. COVID, you're going to die of this terrible virus. What's the way out? Social distancing, wear masks, wash your hands, make sure that we make billions of dollars off this plan. What's the reward? You won't get the virus. Good. Well, now the statistical analysis coming in, it was far less dangerous than the seasonal flu, but now we're billions and billions and billions of dollars in the hole economies being destroyed, personal lives being destroyed, yet people are still wearing masks and people are still playing the game. And now we got mandatory vaccination coming down the pipe. Someone did an estimate on how much Bill Gates alone stands to make off this. It was a, you know, actually it was almost 
a trillion dollars or something like that. It's so sickeningly mm-hmm. large. But th- that can't happen unless people play the game with him, right? So there comes a time for revolt. There comes a time for rebellion. Martin Luther King was a true man of God that rebelled against the inequality that white men showed colored people. And I'm right there with him. Um, Gandhi was a true rebel. He stood up to the entire British government literally by himself, but got the country of India behind him. And he did it nonviolently. If Gandhi can take over one of the most powerful empires in the world, who are some of the most seasoned crooks, all you got to do is go through any of the British museums and you'll realize they've raped and pillaged everywhere. Um, they're right up there with the Christian church, and, and, and I'm not saying anybody's any better than or worse. Uh, they just have a nice historical record of how they raped everybody, stole their stuff. We are at a point now where we've got to grow up. And we've got to say, look, if there's one true thing with all religions, it's that they're based in love, that they all are based in human relationships. And all these mythologies and religious scriptures are all stories about what happens to people when they live certain ways. The story of Jesus um, and and him uh, getting sold out by Judas— how many of us have had a Judas in our life, and how many of us sure. have been a Judas? You see, so when you look at, at religious documents as teaching stories and allegories, so, so metaphors and allegories, and as a mode of inspiring you to say, if I live that way, that's likely to happen. If you sell out your brother, this is likely to happen. If you steal from your parents, this is likely to happen. If you sacrifice your own child for some imaginary God, well, one thing for sure, you're going to lose a child. (laughs) That's one thing objective that'll happen. Um, And any God that's a God, and this brings up another important point that I bring up to my students all the time. Another definition of God is that which has no needs. By definition, God has no needs other than itself. Anybody else has needs. A dragon has to feed itself. It has needs. God needs nothing outside of itself to feed itself. It has no needs. So whenever you see a religion saying, God needs this of you or demands that of you, you can't touch your genitals, you can't do this, you can't do that, you know right away that's not the words of God. That's the word of somebody who's got either a contorted view of God that was taught that as a child and hasn't figured it out yet, or that has a game going on that's highly profitable and they're very good at selling memberships. And as Manly P. Hall, one of the world's most famous and successful philosophers and historians of religion says, um, in every church you can find somebody in there on Saturday counting up all the money they made and trying to figure out how to get more on Sunday. Um, He says, in any third world country, if you want to find the most expensive car in town, go to the church and and drive behind the church and you'll see a Mercedes Benz or a BMW and everybody else is, you know, dragging rickshaws and starving to death. Um, Am I against the church? I don't want to be misinterpreted. There's a lot of beauty in religion, tremendous beauty in religion. 
but it's up to us to be adult enough to practice the beautiful parts and mm-hmm. not emulate the disease of it and realize that teaching stories about what happens when you live certain ways are to remind you not to do that. But what do people do? They go out and emulate it and they have this sort of Christian idea. I can be a pirate all week as long as I ask Jesus for forgiveness on Sunday. So ultimately what's happened is we've got this Christian model where you can be an asshole six days a week, live however you want. And you can go repent. And you just go repent and the church made countless, countless amounts of money by putting a fee on the magnitude of the sin. So if you had sex with somebody else's wife, that might cost you 10 horses or 10 cows. If you killed somebody, that might cost you your whole property. So ultimately what they did was they used sin as a, as a force of, of leverage to bargain and the business model's so good, you don't get your reward until you're dead, but they've got all your money and your membership. All I'm saying is, there's in everything, there's a balance of good and evil. A sword can be something to protect yourself with and feed yourself with, but it can also be something that you do harm with. So can a butter knife. Um, a car can be a weapon or it can be a great support. Ultimately, we're all here to learn our potential Earth, to me, is a schoolyard for immature souls where occasionally more evolved souls like a Deepak Chopra, an Eckhart Tolle, a Yogananda, Ram Dass, uh, you, know, um, you know, the list of saints and sages, St. Hildegard. I mean, the list is long every now and then, but, you know, per capita, there's one of those for every, you know, uh, 50 million children in class. They come to sort of guide the children. But what I'm driving at here is the earth is a schoolyard where the first thing we do is we graduate to realizing that we're a citizen of the world, not of a church. First, we realize that we're a citizen to something more than just our family, such as our society. Then we realize we're the citizen of a culture. Then we realize that we're the citizen of the world. Sometimes we think we're a Christian, but then we realize, oh, we we really can be more whole with some Buddhism thrown in, and then some Taoism, and then some Shinto, and a little Rastafarian now and then. You know, So what happens is as we grow up, we realize our responsibility not only to ourselves and to our family and to our society and to our culture, but to the world itself. But what the world is is a schoolyard where you ultimately keep coming back in your graduation is the realization that you're a citizen of the universe. And when you grow spiritually to the point that you're conscious enough to stay conscious when you die, then you can choose where you want to go, what experiences you want to have, because at that point, you're pure light and you have a light body and you know how the universe works, and you can get from one side of the universe faster than you can get up 10 flights in an elevator, because if you look into the quantum physics of wormholes and time travel, um, you realize that the magnitude of the size of the universe doesn't mean anything when you enter into non-locality, and you enter into superliminal speeds. And the Part of the problem is is people just don't study very much. They don't stay up with the current advances in science. Well, because whatever they're learning is challenging their beliefs so much well, yes. that they'd have to like disintegrate their self. That's why I tell all my students, 
no any belief worth living is worth challenging. Yeah. If I challenge my beliefs constantly, that's one of the reasons I study a lot. I want to know right away who has an idea that refutes any of the great ideas that I'm in love with because until I can flip my own idea and look at the underside of it and see where the holes in it are, I don't really want to invest too much in it or I might just become another fool that falls so in love with his own ideas, blind to the truth of it. Um, and, who, who, is a, who is a mentor that's challenged your understanding of God that just rocked your world? Um, well, they haven't challenged it in a negative sense. Yogananda, uh, when my mother joined the Self-Realization Fellowship, the, the monks just completely blew the lid off all the Christian dogma and showed me the beauty of all the world religions and why they worship all the world religions and taught me what God really was. And, and so that just blew the cobwebs right out of my head and it was just a perpetual hallelujah. That's what I feel like in this conversation. Well, you know, I, there's some cobwebs that have been shaken out. There, there's been times where, you know, I can't remember specifics, but, you know, Ken Wilber is very good at making you really carefully analyze your own beliefs. Um, Walter Russell really did not like Christianity, even though he was a Christian. He, he didn't like what he, uh, if I remember right, referred to as corporate Christianity. And um, he, because he really didn't like people, seeing people being railroaded, but he had some beautiful and beautiful comprehensive descriptions of God. So he grew me a lot. Um, Itzhak Bentov is, is just beautiful and shows you the magic and mystery of many things. Um, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to dust my mind off because I've been so immersed in all this. I really found that the Eastern philosophies are just the greatest. Of, I mean, when I study Eastern religion and Eastern philosophy compared to Western, it's it's almost like the West is still locked in kindergarten or something. You know, you got to go up into the mountains, into the caves to find people that really know what's going on, which mm. is the weirdest thing. You'd think they'd be in the middle of the city. But I've always found this, though. People that are deeply spiritual and connected to God, they're not advertising how connected they are. They're not going out and having to talk about it. It's, well, just, you, it's just who they are. Well, there's something deeper than that. Here's an example of a learning experience I had. I used to find myself feeling a little frustrated with all the Eastern mystics kind of disappearing into the wilderness. And my thought was, if they were really spiritually evolved, why don't they come down into the world and help us out? Yeah. You know, so in my own spiritual growth and through many mystical experiences I had, one, I studied healing and I studied prayer and I looked at Larry Dossey's research and many other researchers and then I began working with my own shamanic work and healing and practices and through a series of events it dawned on me that I had to ask forgiveness for my judgment of a lot of the yogis sitting in caves because I realized that they are coming into the world but they're sending their consciousness into the world and they're coming in their light bodies and they're coming into people's dreams and they're guiding sometimes millions of people at a time. But the locus of their um, 
broadcast is sitting in a cave where they can do it without being interrupted. So they're actually here with us all the time, and they are doing their best for us. And, you know, part of that uh, was because I studied Kabir quite a bit, and Kabir used to really rattle on the yogis and say, and, and even Buddha said after seven years of extreme yoga, it was just another game. And it didn't get him anywhere. He didn't get enlightened until he gave up yoga. And that's not a criticism of yoga, but this is Buddha's actual story. And Kabir, who was a weaver, believed that you, you to really know God, you have to experience God, and you can't experience God without relationships. So to to do a bunch of study in a monastery is is silly because you got to go into the world where you can get challenged. Otherwise, you don't really know if it's just intellectual growth or legitimate growth. So Kabir was really hard on the yogis, and I was very influenced by him. But through a series of mystical experiences I had, and through my own spiritual practices, um, I came to realize, wow, the yogis are actually really working for us all the time. A lot of them are. And they have tremendous reach and they can be multiple places at once by any factor, whether they want to be in a whole city or surrounding the globe. And there are other entities working to support us all the time. But there are entities on both sides because that is what it takes to make consciousness. And anybody who studies angels knows as real as real are the dark angels. And the dark angels have very important functions. And, you know, one of the ways they describe it to people is, look, if you got rid of all the disease in the world, what would doctors do? They'd have no income. They'd have no job. They would have no way to express their love. If you got rid of all the criminals, what would the justice system do and what would all the cops do? They'd have nothing to do. If you got rid of all the art, then what would the artists do? So ultimately, when you start really looking at this holistically, you see the perfection that doctors and sick people need each other. Lawyers and crooked people need each other, and lawyers and good people need each other because good people have to protect themselves from dark people. Um, educators and students need each other. So you see this complementary opposites at play everywhere when you start looking at yeah. it. And so the further I've gone into my own spiritual exploration, practice, and study, and the more mystics I've studied and the more great minds I've studied, the more beautiful it all becomes. And I think the Bhagavad Gita is such a powerful, powerful teaching because, you know, Arjuna's facing his own family on the other side of a battlefield, his own cousins and people that he loves. And Krishna, who is the you know depiction of God mythologically, says, don't worry about it. Give it your all. We're all going to die sometime. You know, I'm paraphrasing. But really what he's saying is this is the play of life. Life and death need each other, right? Death feeds life. This is the Ouroboros, the snake that eats its mm. tail. You can't have life without death. So peace on earth is not even a question. How do we get peace on earth? It's you get, not even a valid question. As then. soon as you get peace within yourself, you have peace on, peace on earth. All world change begins within the individual. That's one thing I've learned for sure. 
waiting for someone else to fix the world means you're still a child and you're immature and you don't understand how life really works. I want to go deeper on that, though, because you said that that we need polarity. We do. So the only way that peace could exist is if there was war, is if there was death. Well, that's a, a scale of magnitude, but you have to remember that in order for peace to exist, you'd have to bring everybody up to the level of a spiritual adept. And I'd ask you, how are you going to do that with souls that range uh, in experience from first lifetime to uh, 3,000 lifetimes? How do you do that? I don't know, Paul. Can you share with the family? You don't. I don't know if you can. You don't. And the thing is, is that consciousness, the only mode of experiencing itself that God has is consciousness, and it requires these two polarities. You know, so people think, oh, there's not going to be any squabbling in heaven. That's a bunch of silliness. They just squabble about other things. That's why Osho said, when I die, I don't want to go to heaven. It's boring there. I want to go to hell. That's where all the action's at. Um, But the, the point I'm making, though, is that you know, look, I remember seeing an interview with Father Thomas Keating, a very very famous and very beautiful Christian monk whose teachings I absolutely love, and I'm very grateful to Ken Wilber for turning me on to him through his teachings. But Father Thomas Keating was doing an interview with uh, Tammy Simon, the founder of Sounds True, and it was the last interview, I think, before he died, and he was, she was saying, well, I th- I, I'm paraphrasing, but she says, you know, isn't it kind of a cop-out? you know, living in a monastery and being with everybody that's all doing all this spiritual practice all the time. And he goes, are you kidding me? It's like being married to 15 women at once with bad marriages. And the monks, SRF monks also told me, you know, don't think we're getting away. We come face to face with each other's shadows here every day. We have the same work to do that a husband and wife have to do Mm. um, in our growth and development and and it's very real here mm. we all have to grow we we have explored so many concepts about god but the big question is can you share with us what do you believe god actually is well i'll draw you a diagram just because it makes it easier remember i said earlier god is love and love is god so i spent quite a number of years meditating on this. L stands for life. O stands for zero, which is perfect balance, which also stands for pure potential. Pure potential. VE interestingly enough, is the actual scientific notation for volt-electron, and that is will. This is desire. You have to have the desire to live. If you don't, you'll either let yourself go till you die of a disease or you commit suicide, right? So here we have desire. This has a positive charge. Positive is a drawing force. It lacks electrons. Negative has more electrons. So current flows from negative to positive. So life draws us forward into the future, and that's desire. It's your dreams that keep you going, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I want to have a kid. I want to grow my podcast. Connected to love, connected to service. Right? Yeah. So... Interestingly enough, if you say, okay, let's break this down to the basics, then you have a proton. 
And here you have a neutral force, not this, not that, but the source of both. You have a neutron. And VE is volt electron. Okay, what is a proton and an electron and a neutron? They're subatomic particles. Where do they come from? The zero point field, which is constantly bursting with quantum fluctuations, and the vacuum turns out to be the plenum. What we thought was empty is actually so full of energy and activity, it's bursting. And what is it bursting with? Information and energy that produces not only universes, but now we know multiverses. So what you see is that what God is, is the desire to fulfill itself. So if you take the word G and put it here and put D there, you've got giving and desiring. And so when we give, we give away and we desire reciprocity and that's why i say to people love is a boomerang if i give my love to you but i don't get any back it it it's harder for me to love you and it doesn't inspire me to give back yeah but you know you ever given someone a hug and they didn't hug you back it really leaves you feeling or it's like a hug but it's like a half hug or or just like they're not there yeah it's like it's they're just going through the motions but you see god has nothing to hug but god and nobody to love but god so ultimately, what you see is that life is a gift. And when we give love, we experience it. And because we know how fulfilling and, and how joyous and, and, and how much it supports us, we also desire to give more, but we also desire to be loved. So what you see is the positive force which produces a proton, which Nassim Harriman has now shown is all it takes to create a whole universe and that the universe is scaled from the proton all the way up and there's as much information and density in one proton as there is in the entire universe. And, and you have to look it into his work to get the specifics. So that is the neutral force and the electron spins around these two forces. But when scientists look into an atom... It turns out to be 99.999 to the ninth decimal point empty. In fact, research shows if you took all the space out of an atom, all the matter on the world of the entire globe of the earth would be about the size of a pinhead because it's mostly empty, interestingly. Mm. So most of what God is is just potential with a few fluctuations that produce matter. And what is matter? Matter is light wound around itself. And so what do you see? You see love's boomerang forever in flight around a center, which is I. And so who are you? You think you're Josh Trent, but what's looking through your eyes through desire and will to perceive is actually a witness that is neither this nor that, but is creating an illusion because this is a zero force. So I'll have a deep question for you and the listeners and the watchers. If your mother is a zero, 
or your mother and father, whatever you want, is a zero, are you real or are you virtually real? I'm real. What is your definition of real? Real is my senses put together with my awareness. Okay. How can you assure me that that's not part of the illusion? Because if the source of consciousness itself is unconditional, how can you have something that's real without a condition? Well, because I wouldn't exist in physical form if I didn't have senses and if I didn't have awareness. How do you know you're not dreaming right now? I might be. <laughs> I might be dreaming. I have a question for you. Yeah. Have you not had dreams that were more real than this right now? Where I've, you were feeling, smelling, tasting, yes. running, fighting, scared for your life. Oh, yeah. And we're so friggin' happy to wake up. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was a dream. Yes. Okay, good. Well, yeah. When you have a deep mystical experience and you come back from it, this seems like a sluggish dream. And I've had plenty of them. Yeah. So the point is, if God is ultimately a zero, then everything that you see that we call the universe and life is a virtual reality. It is a simulation in which God creates the illusion of reality and the illusion of separation to have its own experience of what its potentials are and what it really is, but ultimately you can't die because there is no death. Because if you take that circle that represents wholeness or God and you divide it in half, you can call one side of it life and the other side of it death. And really those are the names of two halves of a circle. But once you enter into the circle, is there any division. It, what I get from this, what I'm feeling, receiving this teaching from you, is that God is lonely. And God God's is... God's extremely alone. God is giving us this virtual simulation, this projection, because God is inherently lonely. God that's is... That's what this feels like. That's exactly the truth. God is yeah. terribly alone. And I've had experiences of union with God where I felt deep, deep, deep loneliness, isolation, and sadness. And interestingly enough... You can look at the research on this when you, the most damaging thing, most punishing thing you can do to a prisoner is what? Isolation. Put them in isolation. Mm -hmm. And guess what they start doing usually within as little as 72 hours? Losing their mind, peeling their hair out. Making up imaginary friends. Mm. And they begin to illusion. They have illusions and hallucinations and they start relating to people that aren't there. Good. Now you know what's going on with God. All of this is the most elaborate dream energized by infinite power. How much power? Current science shows that there's as much energy in one square centimeter of space as there is in all the matter in the entire known universe. In one square centimeter of empty space. So if you want to know how much power is behind the IMAX projector that God has, God projects a holographic reality that is so real you cannot distinguish it until you have a mystical experience that's even more real than this one, 
or like me, you do dimensional travel and you're in other dimensions where you're with beings that are far wiser and far more developed that tell you far deeper things and you can learn here. Those are pretty intense conversations, I'm sure. Oh, they're beautiful. Yeah. It's like, oh, wow, it just makes you realize God's sense of humor is really wicked. Yes. Okay. So you have to just decide what God do you want if the highest God you can imagine is the God of unconditional love, which almost every person I've ever asked in my classes, what's the highest form of love you can imagine? They almost all agree it's unconditional love. I say, then you better look carefully at what the word unconditional means. If God is unconditional love, it means the creation of any conditions is an illusion because the source is unconditional. If God is a zero then every seeming reality is a virtual reality. But don't think that a virtual reality isn't real because it's the only one we've got. Right. Okay? Which is why I answered you, it feels so real. It does feel real, and it's meant to be because yes. that's how, how lonely God is. And God can't know itself without creating relationships. So, this is why I say... An honest relationship with a friend, with a business partner, with a spouse, a lover, is you meeting God. And to the degree that you work through that relationship, you will have the ultimate church, the ultimate temple, and the ultimate path. Because everything that you can't see about yourself, somebody else can. And everything they can't see about them, you can and together you heal each other's shadows and illusions out of love, and then you begin to wake up to what's really going on, and the further you get out of the illusion, the more you look at the people trapped in the illusion, and out of empathy and compassion, you want to love and support them. So, what is God? No thing. And everything. And to make a point, I don't know if you know this, But a few years back now, not too long ago, a company that does holographic projection took one of Michael Jackson's last big concerts that he did on stage and they put it into a hologram and they started doing concerts around the world, but they had to stop doing it. Do you know why? People thought he was real. Because it was so real they had tremendous emotion about it and thought that it was disrespectful because it was like they were bringing him back from the dead. And so they felt that there was something wrong. And so they got a lot of negative backlash and they had to stop doing it. So what was on stage was light dancing. And it was so real, it made people highly emotional, so emotional they felt it was an invasion of Michael Jackson's spiritual privacy Mm. as a metaphor. And how many times have you been sitting in a movie and found your heart rate speeding up, sweating, shaking, nervous, being pissed off at somebody in the movie? How many people get fucking mad and throw their television out the window because their football team lost? All you got to do is go to England and see what happens. When I first started working in England, I was mind boggled at how out of control these people get at soccer games. I'll never forget, I was driving through Chelsea on the way home from a wor- day of work at the, harb- uh, at the Harbor Club in London, which is where all the hoity-toities and models, and that's where I worked out of. Yeah. And I had to drive right through town, not far from the stadium, and 
the hometown lost and people were flipping cars over, smashing windows, lighting buildings on fire. You'd think it was a race riot all over a football team. This is just a fucking football game. Okay. It happens in America as well. Of course it does. But what I'm saying is we buy into these stories. We buy into the movies. We emulate movie characters. They can change our whole lives and inspire us. There's a lot of people that aspire to Clint Eastwood or to uh, you know various movie stars. But the point I'm really driving at is when you go to a good movie, you get so swept away that you become so part of it that you don't even remember that you have a life out that door, mm-hmm. right? You can find yourself angry. You can find yourself wanting to punch people, you, you know, because you're in a virtual reality. All right. Anybody that's just being honest with themselves and just looks at their own life and looks at their own dreams and their own relationships and their own religious upbringing and the events of the world can see that God is going through the process of experiencing itself, but here's something that's a bit, you know, this is an adult proposition. If you had to put a number on the potentials for God to experience before it can ultimately say, okay, I know myself, what would that number be? I don't think that applies to God. I don't think God works in numbers like that. There's only one that works. And what is that? Infinity. Guess what that is? It's a circle with a twist. Yeah. So you take the unconditional love the zero force of god and you twist it and you have yin and yang light and dark day and night you have an infinite cycle that goes on forever and the problem is is that every time one of us is created as a character in the mind of god we become a co-creator And we not only add to potentials, we create new ones because we too are co-creators with God. That's another thing about really being a spiritual person is realizing that you are using the power of God to create in the world each day and that everything you add to the world is altering the lives of other people and yourself. You're altering the lives of people's futures. That's why I say to my students, it's a very high responsibility to be a teacher. Responsibility spiritually goes from I to we to all. First, you're responsible for yourself because you're 50% of every relationship you'll ever have. No less. You and your partner, Carrie, you're 50% of it, and you need to be 100% responsible for your 50%. No doubt. And she has to be 100% responsible for her 50%. And if you have a child, you will now be pushed to the all level of responsibility because now whatever the two of you do, that child will emulate in the world. And it'll go out into the world and recapitulate that. If you're a podcaster and you've got 30,000 listens per episode, you're affecting 30,000 people with every episode. So if you lie, cheat, and mislead people, you will generate 30,000 times the karma that you did if you deceive your own child Mm. so for each time we go up we increase the magnitude of our spiritual responsibility and when we realize the actions and the ripple effect that we have in the world as an individual 
it always boils down to one thing. If you don't get honest with yourself, love yourself, do the work to heal and look into your darkness because you can't manage what you don't know. Until you meet the rapist, the pedophile, the murderer, the Donald Trump, the Bill Gates, the Hitler, the whoever in yourself, you will always make them the bad guys and the problems of the world will always be somebody else's fault. And this is exactly why Krishnamurti says don't create this illusion of God, this daddy idea. It's not working for you. It's never worked for you. And if it did work with all the religions and 85% of the people in the world claiming religious affiliation, why are we all killing, torturing, and maiming and doing the same shit we've always done? Mm -hmm. Because that pushes the responsibility to an imaginary God in the sky. But ultimately, there's only one place God can be experienced, and you can tell who's experienced because they get closer to loving more and more effectively first by loving themselves and carrying that into a relationship with one other, and then by carrying that into the world with progressively greater numbers. And the more people you have access to, the more responsibility you have because the more impact on the world you have and the more the boomerang comes back. So if Bill Gates is misleading us, it's going to come home to get him. Mm -hmm. If Fauci is misleading us, Trump is misleading us, how many times have we seen, look what happened to Hitler. He's dead. Not because he won a war, because he lost one. Right? Yeah. So, at the end of the day, I believe there's three things that are not illusion, and I think Plato for them. The good, the beautiful, and the true. What's beautiful is sustainable. What's good is good for everybody, and what's true is always true. And your life will mirror that back to you. And to the degree it's true and it gets you killed, then you know you died for the truth and there's no better way to go. People like Martin Luther King aren't afraid to die because they're standing up for what is good, beautiful, and true, such as equality. The great ones are not afraid to die. Countless are the number of true stories of saints, sages, and monks that have been tortured and maimed by the church and burned at the stake for telling the truth about God. In fact, Rumi said himself, I think I quoted earlier, no man can get to God until he becomes a heretic. And the fact that Rumi was not annihilated in the 12th century, I think it was the 12th century, for what he was saying is a miracle itself. Because if you read Rumi, I've got a book called The Forbidden Rumi that the Persian government put under lock and key so nobody could read it. It was that profound. And when you study The Drown Book, which is the story of Rumi's father and his childhood upbringing and see who his father was and how smart his father was, but how out of the box his father was, it's amazing he even didn't get killed. So what do you see? The greatest lovers of God are not afraid to die because all it does is bring you back home and you're always safe with God because that's all there is. <laughs> mm. I think this is the first time in like 400 interviews that I've ever had an out-of-body experience. There was a moment where you were talking and I was just watching us both sitting here talking. Well, <sighs> I think I need a quick break. Uh, yeah. You know what? That's why we go to sleep every night. <laughs> Because we all need a quick break. 
Oh. I'm I'm serious, right? Yeah. The, the the illusion takes a lot of energy to maintain, mm-hmm. but what you'll find is the more anchored you are in love, the more energy you have to support because ultimately what spiritual growth is is stripping the illusions away. But after we come back from the break, I would like to talk a little bit about something we haven't talked about because it's very important, and that is limitation. Mm-hmm. Because you can't understand life or God without the concept of limitation. Aho. Uh-huh. Click over to episode 371 for the final segment in our series, Paul Check, All is God. <laughs> 